It is so good to be with you on this amazing, and it's kind of warm, Sunday, but we have a little mist coming. We, we piped it in. Just a little extra perk for those of you that came down to the beach service. It's so good to be with you and such an honor to share this space and this time with you. And we are looking at parables. So like what more exciting topic can you get if you're teaching than the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth? Very excited. Also, uh, I don't know if this is going to be annoying for them or, or, the, or whatever, but um, two amazing people I'm sitting next to today. Uh, Deborah and Philip Taylor right over here. And I just want you to give them a big just welcome and say hello to them. Um, Dr. Deborah Taylor is was my boss for a long time, the provost at Biola University. They just moved to Palos Verdes recently. And she was a provost during the hardest time in higher education, maybe since like World War II. Like, honestly, and you sailed us through some troubled waters beautifully, and we just appreciate you so much. So anyway, there, just to say thank you, and I'm not, I can't apply to promotion for you, so this is obviously out of my heart. No, there's no other motivation. Yeah, there's a dime. I'm going to give you a dime later on. It's just a thank you, okay? Uh, invest that in some Dogecoin, and who knows what can happen. To the moon. No one? Nothing? Okay. Where's my fraternity guys at? All right. Um, so I do have a cut on my face. If you're wondering, I do have a cut, a gash, some call it. Some call it a cut. Um, I'm preparing to tell a story about a guy who gets beat up and left on the side of the road to die. And so I thought in my research, I went to a, like behind an Arby's, paid a couple guys to beat me up and leave me there and just see what happens. No, it's actually a, my son's fin on his surfboard. He got a GoPro for his birthday, and I'm like, all right, let's go test it out. And I told him, son, don't worry about me. Dad will get out of the way. I've watched a million surf videos. I know how the photogs do it. And he's cruising down the line. I got him right in frame. And I, here he is. I go under, and then I just come up, and I was greeted by a fin. So there's the gash story. Speaking of physical harm, Jesus is going to tell a story. This is in the Gospel of Luke. You can follow along if you'd like to. It will be in Luke's Gospel as we have counted it, chapter 10, chapter 10, starting in verse 25. But you can also listen in and experience um, the way this text was originally consumed by its original hearers, if you'd like as well. And what I'd like to do is get our hands into this parable of Jesus, provide a dash of context, a sprinkle of some stories, and stir everything together with a couple reflection questions. How about that cooking metaphor? See, this is what you pay for here at the River Church. Do y'all paid to get in, right? This is, I said we got to do it differently. Forget about tithing. Let's just charge admission, and anyone that walks by has to pay. That's kind of a new strategy. The finance team didn't go for it. Enough of that. Let me read a story of Jesus of Nazareth, starting in Luke chapter, 20, uh, chapter 10, verses 25 and following. On one occasion, an expert in the law, this is someone that is a, an expert in Torah, in the, the Mosaic law or Israel's scriptures. This is someone that spent their life understanding the intricacies of it and quote unquote mastering it. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, very respectful. Teacher, he asked, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That is life abundant. That is a life that in the ancient Israelites' uh, perspective is the life to come in the resurrection. It's the life when God takes out all the brokenness, all of the wreckage, all of the rebellion, and resets, refreshes, renews the world, okay? So he's saying, what must one do to move into that phase of existence? How do you inherit that? How, do you, how are you invited into that? And Jesus asks him, what is written in the law that is in the Torah? How do you read it? The lawyer or the expert in the law answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and... Love your neighbor as yourself. So he quotes a couplet of passages, the so-called, some of you may have heard of it, the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Achavta et Adonai Vachal Levavcha, Uvachal Nefeshka, Uvachal Muedcha. Oh, that's what I was waiting for, right? I'm, <laughs> I've memorized like three passages in Hebrew so I could just drop them off if I'm speaking somewhere. I'm like, wow, this guy knows Hebrew? He's fluent in Hebrew, and I just say nothing. Just let them assume what they want. <laughs> so that's the Shema. It's a wildly famous passage, and it's essentially the heart, the soul, the, the organizing principle of all the other things God has said about his desires for humans. Love God with everything you have inside, outside, up, down, in and out, all of it. And secondly, Leviticus, what we have counted as Leviticus 19... 18, love your neighbor as yourself, the two connected intricately. So this is what the expert in the law answers, and Jesus says, you have answered correctly. And so he says, so all you have to do is do this, and you'll live. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself, so we're getting a little more of his motivation here. This was not just a curiosity-driven question, and it wasn't even a respectfully, I want to learn at the feet of the master kind of question. It was a public, I want to kind of look better than Jesus. Or, here's a classic one. I want to go into Jesus' classroom, and I want to leave with all the same presuppositions and assumptions that I came with. I don't want Jesus to try to rearrange the furniture of my worldview. And how many of us, I know I never do that, but a lot of you do that. I never do. I'm always like, Jesus, I will be done. Yeah, we always do that. We go to Jesus and say, I hope the Jesus I see is the Jesus that looks at me and goes, let's see, check, check. up. You got it all right. You're the one, right? And, and the truth is, so often Jesus is going to surprise us. And this is indeed happening in this setup to a parable. So he wanted to justify himself, the, the teacher did. And so he said, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? In reply to the, this, Jesus said, and then he tells a story. I love this about Jesus. You ask him a straightforward question. Let's get to the point, Jesus. Yes or no? Binary question. And he tells you a story. He answers with something that is going to make you think deeply and contextually with all your feelings about and thoughts about a particular question you've asked. So he's going to answer with a story, which we're, I'm going to read right now. And here's the story he answers with. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, like 2,000, 3,000 feet 
an elevation down. When he was attacked by robbers, a very common thing, nothing surprising in the ancient travel about that. It's a huge problem and a huge threat. And he's this dude in the story, anonymous person, is attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, that is a priest, uh, one of the temple personnel, one of the people attached to the Jerusalem temple, a priest happened to be going down on the same side of the road. He saw the man. He passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place, this is another individual attached to the temple operations. So an official in the house of Israel. A Levite sees him. He comes to the place and he passes by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. He saw him. He, the term here, he took pity on him or he was moved with deep pity for him. He went bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him. He said, when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So this is the story. This is the story he tells. And then he asks this question to the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Another way of asking that, who was a neighbor to the man in the ditch? The lawyer answers, the expert in the law answers, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. This is a short story. And as I told Bill before I started, I want to have a short-ish sermon. I don't want to tell a short story and then talk at length about it, but it also does have some complexities. This is a very nuanced and exciting dynamic story. And so I just want to um, explore it or ask some questions about it using two questions. Okay, two questions that are reflection questions for us today as well. Bless you twice. Two reflection questions. The question that the expert in the law asks Jesus is a question I would, I don't think I'm out on a limb, suggesting it's a question that a lot of us ask as well. We don't maybe explicitly ask it, but our hearts, our lives, our internal sort of ongoing discourse in our mind asks this question a lot. And I would argue it is a question that the contemporary cultural moment we're in, which is very unique and very loud with voices on our phones, in our, on, on the radio waves, on the televisions, on the billboards, and basically everywhere, screaming at us this question this question. And and here's the question. The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? A way to, what what he's actually asking in this question is this, and this is what I want us all to ask today. Who do I not have to love? Who do I not have to love? Jesus, he answers correctly, love God, heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so he looks for a loophole. Well, okay, fine. I, I, this is all good. Who, where can the limits of my love be found? At what point? Who do I not have to love? And Jesus tells this story and just a, a couple features in the story that really run up against that question. First of all, the characters in the story, the, the victim is anonymous. We don't learn anything about this victim. We have no idea who he is, where he's, what he's up to. We just know he's going from Jerusalem, Jericho. The other characters, a priest and a Levite and a Samaritan. These are all characters that represent identities and born identities. Okay, I just thought about a new title for the sermon. I didn't think about that before. That is identities that, that you're born into. A priest did not become a priest because they went to seminary, studied hard, and made it. They become a priest because of their bloodline, whose kid they were, and particularly in this case is patrilineal kinship, whose father, who's, who was their father? A Levite, the same thing. No accomplishment got you there. No charisma or vote brought you into being a Levite. You were born that way. And in the ancient context, you were respected and given worth and value simply because in the house of Israel, you were of those bloodlines. And a Samaritan. You did not sign up to be a Samaritan. You did not join a political action group. You were born a Samaritan. And born as a Samaritan from the perspective of Jesus' original audience, which are um, uh, Jewish folks living in the land of Israel in the first century. The Samaritans, if we think that ethnic strife and questions and tensions are alive today, which of course they are, in the first century these are at a fever pitch. Like truly in 66 AD, just like 33-ish years after Jesus was crucified, there was the largest provincial revolt in the history of the Roman Empire that took place right in the land of Israel. And it was Rome, Gentiles, versus these um, Jews of the house of Israel in the land. Samaritans and Jews as well. A lot of tension and a really ugly history. A history of violence a history that you can always say, I remember what happened to my grandfather's grandfather and I will never forget it. And I know who you are if you tell me you're a Samaritan. I have a label and a box to put you in and it smells terrible, right? This is the identity that we're talking about here. And for the sake of brevity, I will not rehearse the entire tumultuous, painful history between Jews and Samaritans from really the exile on, but I will say this. This is the last person you expect anything good from. This is the one label you could wear that as a, at least in this context, one of the original audience of Jesus's parable, you could say, this is a bad person. This is a problematic person. We know people like this. Nothing good can come from them. And so Jesus's parable is not so much to explain the law as it is to get you into it with a set of eyes that were not originally yours. It forces you into a story where you have to watch something play out. Jesus sets the characters, the narrative, the setting, all of it, and he makes you watch this 
And a very uncomfortable story it was for many of the original hearers, especially the lawyer who's asking him the question. And what you discover, what you discover is a Samaritan is the one that does not just do a Torah duty. That is, take care of this person. He goes above and beyond. It's ridiculous what he does here. He puts himself at risk physically by taking time on the side of the road. If you find someone in an arid, dry, empty road who's been beaten up, chances are the people that did it are not far away. He stops with a loaded donkey full of goods, perhaps a merchant. He has oil, he has wine, he has other things. And he uses them on this individual who he does not know. Maybe this was a robber himself that a good guy beat up. He doesn't know. He just knows someone's hurt. I got to help him. And he takes him to an inn and it enters into a really risky financial situation. Some of you are financial planners out there. Generally, you don't go to someone you don't know who runs an inn and say, hey, charge whatever you want to the room of this guy that I don't even know. And I'll give you this much money up front. And if there's more, bill me later. That is a risky venture. And he does this. This is the Samaritan doing this. But what's interesting is the question that is asked is actually about the man in the ditch, the man at the side of the road. There's no ditch in this story, but I feel like it's better to think about him in a ditch. Notice the question he asks him. He answers the question, who do I not have to love, Jesus? Where can the limits and boundaries of my love be firmly and safely placed? And Jesus says this in verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He tells the story from the perspective of the man in the ditch. I think this gives me kind of goosebumps when I think about it because it's a brilliant narrative tool he uses. Essentially, Jesus brings us all back to a basic truth we all knew as babies, but society and culture and our own problems and family and history convince us otherwise. That presupposition we all start with is, I am human. You are human beings. We share a space called planet Earth together, and we know this. And as time goes on, we begin to categorize and we begin to rank and we begin to draw in-group, out-group. We begin to say us and we begin to say them. And Jesus asks a question. When you, the hearers, are in a ditch and you are dying and there is no hope and you're thinking about your kids and you're thinking about the, the trips that you were hoping to take and you're wondering, will this be suffering? Will there be more? Will it ever end? Will I be eaten by an animal? And someone comes along down the road, you get a lot less racist, xenophobic. You get a lot less concerned about the status of the person who's coming. You get a lot less concerned about how that person votes and whether that person masks or doesn't mask, you get a lot less concerned about all of those other appendages that we add on to humans. And what you see is a human being that is coming for me and I am in trouble and I need help. And this person is going to help me. It's a powerful place to go. The shared humanity that Jesus reminds us of. And it's so simple, but isn't every transformational truth super simple? That we are humans together sharing this planet. And Jesus of Nazareth is reminding us of that in this parable. I think it's beautiful. So who do I not have to love? Jesus answers with this. I'm going to tell you a story of boundless love. 
I'm gonna show you a picture of love that sees a boundary and eviscerates it. I'm gonna show you a story that makes everyone in the room uncomfortable because that person walks up to that person and we both know those people don't go well together. It's a beautiful story. It's so darn Jesus. And it's one of the reasons I'm just compelled and I am a follower of Jesus. Because story after story and event after event in his life keeps making everyone uncomfortable. Everyone that is, except for often the person who is the most ostracized, the one that is the problem, Jesus then walks up to. Again, if this was my, a three-hour lecture, I would walk through all of Luke and show you story after story after story of Jesus walking up to stigmatized people, problem people, unlovable quote-unquote people, and dignifying them and loving them and doing it in context where it costs Jesus' reputation something. It's so compelling, people. So if you're on a journey this morning and you're like, I just want to, I'm here, someone put me in a headlock and brought me down. The preacher's got sunglasses, so it might be a cult. We're not sure yet. It's not a cult, but we do sacrifice the goat at 10. So if you're not comfortable with that, you can go um, and give some distance. That's all jokes. Those are all jokes, folks at home. But if you're coming here and you're just interested in Jesus, I want to urge you, don't be lazy. Pursue learning about Jesus. Truly one of the most incredible, incredible human beings to ever live in history. And I would argue, and and us here at the River Church um, would argue so much more than just a great human being. This is God with us. The second question, reflection question that I want to ask Because I could sit here all day long and pound the music stand about how bad you are and how much you are getting caught up in your CNN or your Fox News or you're getting caught up in your whatever political idea you have or whatever cultural identity you have made your ultimate. I could sit here all day long and say, you need to love more and love the unlovable. You need to reach further. You need to go further. And how many of us have heard sermons like that? right? I've heard a million of them. And oftentimes I just walk away going, I feel a little bit bad about myself. And I'm going to go back to my life as it was anyway, right? Because the truth is this kind of boundless love is sourced somewhere else. It is not something that an acrostic with five quick application principles is going to implement in your life. It's so gnarly. It's so drastic. And it's so freeing that it has to be sourced from somewhere else. And we find this out as we keep going. It is, the sh- it is God-shaped love. And so the question I want to ask, the second question, the first one is, who do I not have to love? The second one this parable invites us into is, what is the shape of God's love? What is the shape of God's love? If your grasp of God-shaped love is defunct, if your understanding of it is flawed deeply, then you will always operate with a love that has a a significant limit. I really believe this. It's like when you're at Autopia at Disneyland, right? And you're flooring the car and you're like, I am all out flooring it and I'm going at like six miles an hour. You just can't go faster no matter how hard you push the pedal because your love or your understanding of God-shaped love, and I would put another one, your experience of God-shaped love. Either you don't know it or you have amnesia, which so many of us can get. I get a lot. Amnesia. And so the love that is on display in this Jesus story, in this parable, 
is exactly a God-shaped love. So if you're ever wondering or you've heard about God's love and you've heard God's love with a lot of qualifiers and a footnote and like an iTunes agreement you have to sign with all this extra fine print. If that's the God's love you've encountered, I would ask you, put it in your trash, empty the trash, and then come back to this parable and re-encounter God-shaped love. And it's, a, it's exactly this. Uh, the term that the Samaritan, when the Samaritan sees the man in the ditch, the term, one of my favorite Greek terms, splagnizo. Everyone say, splagnizo. Right, that's a good one. You feel it, don't you? It literally is like a, a moved in the bowels, right? Moved in the, 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 the guts of me. It's the kind of reaction where, you know when you start crying and you can't stop? And you're like, I just wish I could stop. This is so embarrassing. I can't. I'm so moved right now. I'm so moved. This is the love that we see the Samaritan having. It's like, it is what I would call a moral emotive sort of gut instinct, a moral and emotive gut instinct that is triggered when the Samaritan sees the man and he immediately goes, I don't know what arrangements I had for my oil and my wine and my donkey and all my money. I had all kinds of plans, but I'm so moved that it's all being deployed to help this person. Why? I splanizo, right? I was deeply moved. It's the same term, by the way, if you go earlier in, in Luke's gospel, uh, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, sings this song about God's forgiveness of his people. It's like based on literally the term is splagna elius, like God's compassion mercy is what leads to him saying, I will forgive my people. God does not forgive you because he's a stoic that tolerates you and wants to populate the new heavens and new earth. God forgives you and me our worst things are things we don't even know we need help from. God puts up with our junk. Why? Because he is so gut, emotively, truly compassionate that it moves him to that. Same, same in Luke 7 where Jesus sees a widow whose only son had just died. And Jesus watches the funeral. And he doesn't look at it and go, well, in, in the last day they'll be raised up. So let's, let's quit the crying, people. Death happens to everyone. Look around. This is not how Jesus responds. Instead, it's hispanizo. He was so deeply moved by this procession. That's the God-shaped love. If your God-shaped love looks different or has little spiky things coming out the side of it, that is not the God-shaped love you will encounter in the Gospel of Luke and particularly in this parable. So I would ask you again, highlight it and delete it. And let this repopulate your understanding of God-shaped love. It's boundless. It's boundless. I want to close by asking now, like you and I personally, because again, this is not an academic understanding of God's love. You can read a systematic theology book about God's love. You can learn about the attributes of God and his love, and it's all great and wonderful. Goodness gracious, it's wonderful to learn stuff. But I really believe there is a deep personal encounter as a community and as individuals that if you have not had it, or maybe you're one of those people that you have so many little gremlins from your past that tell you, that's not God. That's not God for you. 
that you can't experience it, I want to give you another opportunity. I want to give all of us another opportunity to encounter it and experience it. And maybe this is something I would encourage you to do throughout the week. It's just a little uh, sort of experiment or a little reflection, okay? So this is, this is the question I'm asking you. What is the shape of God's love in your mind and heart? And maybe if you want to, you can close your eyes or just look to the horizon or like just kind of look around. I don't know, whatever. But maybe get to, into a reflective place. I want to try something very briefly with you and then we're going to close off. Bill will come up and, and lead some a community in a couple minutes, in a minute. So again, maybe close your eyes. Maybe look to the horizon. Just Let's just breathe for a second, right? Here we go. This is not a cult. We're just breathing, people. Just be present right here, right now. Feel the sand in your toes. Feel your body settling into your chair or a piece of sand or standing. Be present right here, right now. And either with your eyes closed or look into the horizon, I want you to introspect deeply for just a second. In the safety of your mind, you're not going to have to share this with anyone. I'm not going to be calling people up to ask them to tell us what, they, what they're doing in their mind. This is you, an opportunity. In the safety of your mind, I want you to unveil for a moment that part of you that you tend to hide. Maybe it's that part of you that is a hurt from the past. You have been hurt so deeply. Maybe it's a part of you where you have hurt someone. Maybe it's an idea about yourself, like a caricature of you that someone drew in your life, and maybe they drew it so again and again and again and again that the pad of paper has the indentation of that caricature, and you have walked around with it, and here you are 70 years old or 17 years old, and you actually, part of you believes that about you. You are a problem. You are shame. You are, quote, unquote, unlovable. At least that part of you is unlovable. And so God may love you, but he doesn't really like you. He loves you because he has to, because that's what God does. So I want you to stand there unveiled for a moment. That, that part of you that is the tenderest. And there you stand on the side of an arid empty road descending from Jerusalem to Jericho. And you lie there in your shame or you lie there in your embarrassment or your sin. Maybe it was last night. Maybe it was last decade. And it haunts you. And no one else is there. It is you alone. No one will ever see this. And on the horizon, on the road, you see a figure that is beginning to walk. And as you reach for your veil, you realize they're not there. There's no way to cover yourself up. You are exposed before them. And this figure that is walking as they walk closer and closer, you recognize, oh my goodness, it's Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is walking and he's alone and I'm alone and I'm laid bare. And that side of me that no, I don't want anyone to see If that Jesus crosses the road to get away from you, that is, hear me, not 
the Jesus of this passage, this gospel, or of history. That is another Jesus. The Jesus that you will see coming to you will walk up to you with a quiet confidence, without alarm, without making a scene, and will put his hand under your chin and will lift your head and say, my beloved, what are you doing down there? Can I heal you? Can I hold you? Can I bandage you? Can I take all that I have and invest it in you? Why? Because I am so gut emotional, morally moved because I love you. And that is the Jesus we encounter in this parable. What is the shape of God's love in your mind? It is this and only this. So we're going to, I want to encourage you this week, even taking 10 minutes a day or, or maybe one more time this week, and you can get alone if you can get alone in your car, in your house. I don't know where you got to go to get alone. Put on some wave sounds or do something and just sit quietly for 10 minutes. Rehearse that scene a few times. Go back there again. Every time you hear that ugly side of you, telling you that this is your identity, this is who you are, this is who you were, it's who you are, it's who you always will be. Get back on that road. Experience the God-shaped love of Jesus. And I believe then we're going to be so free to love other people. It's like all bets are off, baby. This is going to be the most loving place you could possibly imagine because when you've experienced that love, it drips everywhere. So Bill is going to come up here and lead us in a time of communion as we close off. Thank you so much, James. I, I, I want to say thank you to James, but I don't want to move the direction of where our minds are at from Jesus to James, even though they're so similar. Um, but thank you, James. You know, this is why we come to the table because the table represents that incomparable, unboundaried love of Jesus for us. And the symbolism is what's important, not the reality of plastic cups with a little bit of juice and a cracker in it. The symbolism is what is so vital because the night that Jesus was betrayed, before he went to the cross to give his life as a sacrifice for you and me to demonstrate his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ, that's when he died for us. So we don't have to bring anything to this table except that image that James helped us to get to, us exposed on the side of the road. We come to the table. And he took, he took a loaf of bread, and he broke it in front of his most intimate disciples, and he says, this bread represents my body. And it's going to be broken for you. And then after supper, he took the cup, the wine, and he lifted it up, and he said, this, this, this wine here represents my blood, the blood that in a few hours is going to be spilt, shed, poured out for you in this cup. 
it represents a brand new way of relating to God. His shed blood provides complete, total forgiveness of our sins. And I'll just make one more note. There's something so impactful about this table because we as a community are all going to go to the same table. It is one of the most beautiful pictures of the brilliance of the church and that we don't get to choose who we go to the table with. Levite, priest, Samaritan, white, black, rich, poor. We don't get to choose. Well, I don't really want to love those people. The only way to come to the table is to come in community with each other, with all of our stuff exposed to Jesus. And he says, come. Come. You are welcome to this table. And if this is the first time you've come to this table, what's required is you say, Jesus, I'm open. I want more of you. I want more of that love that James talked about. And if you've come 10,000 times, come today as if it's the first time. And we have a very slow, casual way of ending our service. We just end it together around the table, and then we're done. And if you're in your 20s and 30s, please join Taylor and others for Second Sunday. Have a burrito. I hope you'll introduce yourself to Haley and just enjoy the time. And for the rest of us, um, just enjoy one another. So when you're ready, Ron will play some music. And um, come and appreciate the fact that you come just as you are. And you come with all sorts of other people that are just like you. Even though they may feel so different because of Jesus. God bless.